HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and one of my very favorite guests is back on the show today. Tom Philpot is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine. His book uh, is Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. And boy, will you learn a ton if you read that book. It's uh, basically evergreen. I don't think anything else has come out, anything even remotely like it. Um, not that it's so old. It came out, what, in 2020, right, Tom? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, great. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I love being able to call you up and, and say, hey, <laughs> what's going on, man? Let's talk about your latest uh, story. And your latest story was really interesting to me. Well, thanks for having me so much, Katie. Let's uh, let's jump right into it. So, so your last story uh, uh, identified, uh, you know, and the nepotistic part of this is almost the least of the story. But anyway, um, just to kind of give readers the background, um, Tom just wrote a story about Jess Vilsack, who is the son of Tom Vilsack, our Secretary of Agriculture. Um, Jess has taken on a new job as the general counsel with a company that is called Summit Carbon Solutions, and Summit Carbon Solutions is looking to build a massive pipeline uh, that they are dubbing the Midwest Carbon Express. And this is meant to capture the carbon dioxide <clears throat> emitted by 31 separate ethanol plants uh, that are scattered throughout the Midwest and bury uh, said carbon dioxide in North Dakota. Tom, you're going to have to explain to me how you bury a gas. But anyway, um, so, okay. but for starters, <laughs> for starters, take us through a little bit of the history of ethanol in the United States, because I think it's, you know, people see that their gas is a certain percentage of ethanol, um, but I, I think it's probably lost somewhat in the distant mists of time why we do this and how that came to be. And also, uh, after you do that, I want you to talk about Secretary um, Bill Sachs' role in promoting ethanol and the corn industry in uh, the United States over the last couple of decades. But let's start with the history of ethanol, for starters. Yeah, and I'll try to be really brief. Um, but, you know, basically, it's a product in an industry that would not exist without government support from the very beginning. And I, I think the, the sort of uh, long story short is that 
when we started to really produce a whole bunch of corn and, you know, we see this, um, this spike in, you know, in corn yields in the second half of the 20th century and this policy push to um, sort of maximize production, maximize acreage uh, of corn, um, you, you get this, um, this overproduction, this sort of structural overproduction Right. And a scramble to find ways to use it. Right. Um, you can only use so much of it. You know, it's it's a great um, feed for that for the livestock industry. Yep. Livestock industry booms over the same period, partially because corn is so cheap. Right. Um, but you, you can only you know feed so much corn to animals, and, and so the, the scramble in the seventies, um, starting in the late seventies and into the eighties, comes like how can we add value to this cheap corn and, and make a profit over it out of it. And um, the ethanol industry and the high fructose corn industry sort of develop in tandem um, by Archer Daniels Midland. They, they figure out a, a way to, to, um, to create um, high fructose corn syrup and make it, make it profitable. Right. Um, but you get these um, sales spikes of soda in the summer. It's hotter in the summer. People drink more soda. Yeah, the industry burns through more fructose corn syrup, and there are plants that make it, um, you know, go, you know, start to idle a little bit, um, not work at full capacity in the winter, uh-huh. and so they really start pushing um, ethanol as something you can mix into the gasoline supply, and um, and they get some um, some um, couple of different government programs. Um, the first one was a tax break for for gasoline mixers would get a tax break for mixing in ethanol. And then later under George Bush, uh, starting in 2005 and, uh, you know, once again, bumping up in 2007, you get this ethanol mandate, um, which says that these gasoline mixers, these, you know, these companies that mix up the, 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 the gasoline and create our gasoline supply, they have to use a certain amount of ethanol. Uh, and they, the, the tax break went away around 2010. <clears throat> But the um, renewable fuel mandate that sort of boosts ethanol uh, remains to this day. In fact, the Biden administration has to decide, I think, later this year. Yes, I read 2022. Yeah. Yeah. How to, um, it's the EPA, not, not the USDA, has to decide um, what those levels will be going forward. But mm-hmm. right now, the mandate means that about 10% of our you know, fuel supply in, in the United States has to have ethanol in it. And, um, and so that, you know, that that's what really boosts this industry up, but without the, the tax break, um, you know, for decades and then the ethanol mandate, um, taking over for it, um, you know, 15 or so years ago, um, we would not have uh, a massive ethanol industry. And I, I think it's worth saying that the ethanol uses about a third of the corn crop. So, you know, you're talking about 80 million acres of corn, Yeah. Um, you know, gr- growing every year. Um, that's almost a, a landmass, almost the size of California. Um, and a third of it is going into our car fuel to uh, offset just 10% of our gasoline use. Um, right. And so it is a staggering use of resources um, and, you know, my book lays out some of the costs of that to the soil in the Midwest yep. and the, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And the water use, because corn is a very water intensive crop. So there's well, that. A lot, of, a lot of the, well, a lot of the corn belt is rain fed. I mean, parts of, you know, 
parts of the, the plains, um, it's a very big issue when you're, um, you know, sucking dry the Agalala um, aquifer right. for, for corn. Um, but uh, I think that the big, the bigger water problem for corn is um, just the uh, water pollution that comes right. off of these farms. And I'm sure your show has been discussed in the past. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. All of the all of the agricultural inputs that go in to make a corn yield as big as it is, uh, pay, you know, or end up in the in the waterways <laughs> as they no run doubt. off the fields. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all part of the big dead zone down in the Gulf and everything else. I know you've written about that, too. Um, I want to go back to something you said, though, in the beginning here, which really has puzzled me. And and uh, and I hadn't really thought that the corn. I really thought of this whole sort of ethanol, um, you know, bugaboo as something that kind of emerged in the late '90s as kind of you know a part of a you know a sort of sustainability initiative, if you will, or a, you know the idea that this is somehow going to be healthier for the planet. But in fact, what you're saying is that the corn lobby was, or the corn industry was ramping up, even in the '70s and '80s. What drove that? Why, why did it get to be so big uh, in those pre- preceding decades? Like that, I was unaware of. Well, there, you know, it, it was, you know, mostly what I was saying before about how we've got to figure out a way, you know, some added value. Uh, if corn, I mean, imagine like a bushel of corn goes for between, you know, a gyrates, but as low as $2 a bushel right. to 5 or $6 a bushel. Or, or somewhere nine. between. I remember it, right, it, like in 2012, 13, 14, corn was going as high as 7 and $9 a bushel. Yes, that's right. Um, really incredible, yeah. The, the sort of more normal price is around three fifty. Um, right. A bushel is 66 pounds. And so you're talking about pennies a pound for this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you got to figure out a way to do something with it and make it worth more. Um, and, and so right. that was the original um, – impetus but you're exactly right that uh, and there you know there was also from the start there was this energy independence idea there was this, this idea that we're importing all this oil from the middle east and we can do domestic you know we can have energy independence and grow domestic fuel um renewable fuel um i, I think that's a misnomer i don't think it's renewable at all it's just the soil <laughs> right impacts of it sounds um, good though but, <laughs> but yeah in the mid-2000s especially when you've got high oil prices, you've got, you know, the, the Ill, ill-fated Iraq war venture, um, and you've got, you know, growing concern about climate change. And you had a president who was very aligned with the, um, with the oil industry. Sure. And he's, he's got to do something. And, um, and so that was sort of big, George Bush, um, George W. Bush's big response to right. climate change concerns about wars for oil was, okay, we're going to put a lot of resources here into um, building out our domestic ethanol production. Um, And, you know, a lot of critics like myself think that was a completely false solution. Yes, totally false for all the reasons that we are going to explore uh, in the rest of this program, but also some of the ones that you just alluded to, which is the impact of corn on soil, on water health, soil health, et cetera. Um, but let's let's move on for a second and talk a little bit about the Midnight Carbon, or Midwest Carbon, I keep wanting to say Midnight Express, right? Mid- Midwest <laughs> Carbon Express, um, uh, you know, that is supposed to capture all this carbon dioxide from the ethanol plants and so on. Um, what, first of all, how long is the pipeline? What is What are they talking about here? How much land will it travel through? How long is it? It's um, massive. It's right? um, it goes through multiple states, m- mostly Iowa, um, Minnesota. Oh yeah, they're gonna love that. Mm-hmm. 
Illinois a little bit, um, mostly Iowa, and it covers you know, the, the plan would cover two thousand miles. That is big, and it involves something like thirty ethanol refineries, and you know the other um, the other thing is also fertilizer plants. I think there's one or two ammonia fertilizer plants in that um, area uh-huh. that would that would sign up for it. So it would. Um, it would capture CO2 from, from these plants, um, liquefy it, and put it in the pipeline. Now, let me just say something positive about it. Yes. Uh, and that is that this is really the same idea as clean coal. That Talk about a relic from the, the mid-2000s, um, <laughs> this idea of clean coal. The idea was that when you, when you burn the coal, if you could grab the carbon out of it uh, and sequester it, then you would have clean coal. Uh, right. That was false for many reasons because there's a lot more nastiness in uh, in the smoke that comes out of coal than just carbon dioxide. Sure, but of course. The problem with coal burning and carbon capture, the reason why it never took off, is that um, the the smoke is only about I think it's like twenty percent carbon dioxide, so it's not a very pure source of carbon dioxide. Right. So it ends up being really expensive and energy intensive to. Uh, to sort of purify it and trap it and get pure carbon dioxide. Ethanol is um, essentially an ethanol plant is a distillery. Um, uh-huh. it's, what it's doing is it's taking corn and fermenting it just like the process for making beer. Yep. Um, and, oh my God, hold on one second. I hope we can, I think my partner has, <laughs> uh, has left and the dogs are loose. Um, <laughs> dogs happen. I have a dog yes. in this house it's, it, okay. who's likely to erupt. Don't worry about it. So to go back, um, the thing about ethanol is basically a distillery. So you're you're first you're making beer, and then you're distilling that alcohol into pure alcohol, and that's what ethanol is. And so imagine the carbon dioxide that comes out of beer. It's like this pure thing as part of the fermentation process. And so the stream leaving it is like 98% carbon dioxide. And so in contrast to coal... Um, it's uh, it's a lot cheaper to trap this carbon, um, right? And 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 so that, that's a positive about this. Um, and and the same thing is true of uh, for different reasons, but the same thing is true of fertilizer plants. You get a very uh, pure stream of CO two leaving them, uh-huh. and uh, and so that's what makes it attractive is that you can do it for um, really low cost. Um, that's okay. some, probably about the last positive thing I'm going to say about this. <laughs> well, let's <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. Okay. So in your piece, you write that Summit Carbon Solutions, the company that is proposing this pipeline, uh, their business model relies heavily on federal farm and energy policies that are friendly to big agribusiness, along with the renewable fuel standard that we discussed a few minutes ago uh, that came in under the George W. Bush administration. Um, so let's talk for a second about these agricultural policy, these subsidies and energy policies and the impact of the, that they have had on the farm economy, say, over the last, I don't know, 15 years? Is, well, that, a, is that a fair time period to talk about them? I mean, I, I think um, the thing that I had in mind when I wrote that yeah. is, is this thing called Section 45Q of the right. tax code. Uh-huh, and right. um, and that hasn't had much of, a, of an impact yet. And really, a lot of the climate stuff, like I'm sure you've had shows about carbon markets and agriculture. I think oh, with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I remember that. And um, 
And all that stuff is pretty much in its infancy and it's pretty much a lot of hopes and dreams. And um, the, the price is still really low uh, for, uh, for carbon, let's say carbon sequestered in soil. Right. Um, 45Q is a potential gold mine. Well, that's okay, the well, thing. I mean, you described like phenomenal profits to be made. And I, I wanted yes. to ask you, like, what kind of money are we talking about if this project reaches fruition? So we're talking about really big money, and it could be a lot more money really soon. And so so 45Q is this idea that came up in the late 2000s uh, in the tax code, and it was all about clean coal. And it was all this idea that will give you a tax, um, you know, we'll have, we'll have a price of, you know, the, the per ton price of carbon dioxide sequestered in the ground in these, you know, deposits, these, form you know, underground formations. Um We'll have a price for it, and that will help you get your clean coal off the ground. Well, it never right. worked for clean coal because um, the price would have – it's so expensive. The price would have to be so astronomical that, you know, even uh, sort of government – you know, even sort of like congressional people uh, uh, sympathetic to the coal lobby, um, they couldn't get the price high enough to actually um, help with clean coal. Okay. Um, and so it, it just kind of sat there and – it was very little used. And then in the 2018 um, tax overhaul by Donald Trump, 45Q got a major boost. I think it was um, $30 a metric ton. And um, and the 2018 reform takes it up to 50 a metric ton. And so this um, summit, this um, Midwest um, uh, pipeline that we're talking about, it claims that it can do 12, it can sequester 12 million tons of carbon dioxide every year. And so if you multiply that by 50, you get $600 million a year. Wow. Um, but there's a couple of things on the horizon that, that could um, sweeten, that, sweeten that very much. One of them, uh, and the major one, is that the Build Back Better bill yeah. um, has, you know, it, it sort of gathered up all these really disparate elements, right? which is how that bill got made in the first place, which is all this different stuff. And one of the things that it hoovered up was um, taking the 45Q and raising it to 80 bucks a ton Whoa. from 50. And so our calculation oh. of 600 million goes over a billion dollars a year. Um, but there's another catch to it. And what it offers is direct pay. I didn't get in, into this in that piece, but I have another piece that I'm working on. Right. Um, it, it would make it direct pay. So in the old one, um, a tax credit is only good if you have taxes to pay, right? Right. Uh, like if, if they gave you and me um, a, a $50 million tax credit, um, that would be great, but we don't make enough. We to, don't make you know, 50 we, million. We don't make $100 yeah. million. Dollars. <laughs> yeah. So we, we would benefit a lot smaller. Um, and so if your project doesn't have any income at all, because you're literally burying something under the ground, right? Um, and your only income is going to be stuff like tax credits, then, you know, you have a couple of solutions. There's a thing called a tax equ equity swap, where you can get an investor to essentially invest in your company. And part of the, what they get for it is they can use that tax credit. Uh. Um, wow. And that that shaves about 20 percent. The, the sort of cost of doing business for that would take about 20 percent wow. off of that. Right. But what the Build Back Better bill would do is make a direct pay. And so what that would mean would be like, you don't have any taxes. Don't worry. 
um, your $600 million or a billion dollars or whatever it's going to be um, will be like a tax refund, like you overpaid. Um, and so you would get a check from the government oh for a billion God. dollars um, for indirect <laughs> pay. And um, and you've probably heard of a certain senator in West Virginia who loves coal named Joe Manchin. Yes, I have uh, heard of him. <laughs> who has, um, you know, one of the one of the, you know, two or three votes, uh, who knows how many votes holding back, hold back better. Yes. Um, he's got various things in it he doesn't like, and so he won't vote for it. But yep. 45Q is one that he likes a lot. And in 2021, I think it was in March, he introduced a bill that would take 45Q um, to $110 a ton. Oh, come on. And so now you're taking that 50 and more than doubling <laughs> Cut it. Out. So Cut it says, out. You know, Jesus. well over a billion dollars a year. Um, and uh, and so, you know, when they, if they, if they break Build Back Better into chunks that are mansion friendly, um, as there's a lot of talk about that, yes. that will definitely happen. I, I don't know if it'll go all the way to 110. Um, right. But he's very much in favor of an expanded 45Q and direct pay as, as part of it. Um, Who's so the, paying the, the direct pay? Like, wh- is that coming out I. of our tax dollars? Yes. yes. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Oh yeah, because God. Yeah, let me inter- oh, let me introduce a one. This is unbelievable. Let me introduce one more minor complication and then <laughs> drop another shocker on top of it. So okay. Minor I'm complication ready. is there is this thing called advanced oil recovery, um, and it goes by the acronym EOR, uh-huh. and that is in um, in places where they 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 frack. Right. Um, they 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 frack and they get most of the of this you know well they get most of the oil or gas out of it right um but if they inject it with carbon dioxide they can get another sort of you know they can free up another bunch of oil from that well okay um and advanced oil recovery is something that 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 happens quite a bit um when there is um when there's high oil prices when oil prices go up that oil gets more valuable so it makes sense to um to go get it and you can under current law you can get a um a 35 um a 35 dollar per ton credit uh for sequestering carbon while doing um advanced oil recovery oh nice oh uh, and so now your co so what your co2 in this scenario what your co2 is going to is is going into an oil well and getting this last bit of oil out and supposedly, if everything works right, it will then be sequestered forever um, in this deposit. And, and so you're, you're getting oil on top of this um, sequestration. Um, and this is really controversial in, environmental, uh, world, in the environmental world about whether this should be, um, is this a positive thing if we should be subsidizing it? Um, but right now, it's subsidized at, at the rate of um, 35 Bucks, uh, so it's fifteen dollars less. So you're, in, you know, so you look at it and say, well, I get thirty-five bucks um, a ton from the government if I do advanced oil recovery, but I get fifty if I don't. So there's fifteen dollar difference. So I might as well not do it. But sure. it could be really profitable to do it when oil is high enough. And yeah. um, in my reporting, I learned that the rule of thumb is that um, EOR um, it goes for 
um, per ton of carbon dioxide about 40% of the price of, an, of a barrel of oil at a given time. Wow. Um, and so right now, um, if you were, if this pipeline were up and running, which it's not, um, they could get um, way more money if they did advanced oil recovery than, than if they than if they didn't, because they can get thirty five for advanced oil recovery and about thirty five more. I'm sorry, thirty five dollars for on their forty five Q tax break and about thirty five more for um, for the EOR part of it, advanced right. oil recovery. So that so, would take so, it to seventy. There you get seventy. 50. Right. Yeah. And so the incentive would be to do advanced oil recovery. And this is a big, uh, on the ground in Iowa, this is a big sticking point because the activists and environmental groups that are fighting it say, this is a backdoor way to do advanced oil recovery with this, um, with this carbon. This carbon is going into the fracking industry. And Senate says, no, it's not. We have no plans to do that. Um, but I'm here to tell you that the guys behind Summit aren't the kinds of guys that look kindly upon, you know, giving away hundreds of millions of dollars in profit um, over some principle. So <laughs> I think it remains an open question. And, and I think that, you know, as the rate goes up, like I think that um, if it goes to 80, I think that the non EOR, I mean, the, the EOR rate would be like, 55 and that's a bigger difference Whoa. um yeah. uh, so it's a bigger difference and so it you know it raises the threshold over which it's profitable um but under the current law it, you know under current 45q it's profitable over like 38 dollars a barrel um at a time when oil is like 80 bucks a barrel um, right so that's just a, a side note to think about is that um summit says oh we're not going to do a vessel recovery with this but activists, I think, do have a case when they say, um, you know, what's going to stop you from doing it down the road? Right. Who's going to stop them? I yeah. mean, so let me just let me just lay quickly one more thing. Because, oh, yeah. I, you know, I sort of um, I, I got you with that, you know, which just how much money they can make off of 45Q. Well, yeah. there's this other thing that is called the um, California Low Carbon Fuel Standard. Uh -huh. And it's ca California's trying to take down the carbon intensity of its um, of its uh, auto fuel, and so it's um, you know it basically will issue credits um, to gasoline. Um, so if you sell a low carbon fuel into that market, they will issue you a credit that you can then sell to a producer of dirty dirtier fuel. Oh, right. um, and that is another big part of this business model. And I was talking to a, a couple of analysts today. Wow. And um, the price of that could be, and so that's very much in the plans. They talk about it. If you look at summit material, they talk about the low carbon fuel standard. That could be even more of a windfall than 45Q. It could generate even more money than, than 45Q. Unbelievable. Now, that money would be split with the ethanol companies. There is some deal, like if you sign up to be part of this pipeline, then you're getting then part of the deal that you get is some portion of that credit. So this isn't going straight to the bottom line of summit. Um, but it's another significant source of profit for this, um, for this enterprise. Um, and, and, you know, so they're talking about it being about a $4.5 billion project. Right. And um, they could more than make that up really fast with uh, 45Q and the, California low carbon fuel standard and a bunch of other states are coming up with them. Um, 
I think Washington just instituted one. There's a Canadian state that has one. Wow. And so that, that this market is booming. Um, and yeah, it's just like, th- this could be this massive windfall. Massive, massive. And, uh, well, we'll discuss this in a minute, but, you know, it just shows that there is a, no slowdown uh, in the way we are essentially uh, funding and providing sucker to the oil industry uh, moving forward, even as we all, you know, are, are saying, oh, well, we have to dial back our reliance on fossil fuels. Um, I want to, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about those who measure like how do they measure this shit and who excuse me and who monitors it like how like when you're talking about a ton of this or you know i mean how are they able to uh, it just seems to be like who's reporting on this in order to make sure that it's accurate like a company can say i i measured uh you know 500 million tons of ethanol here i mean of uh, of carbon dioxide who is going to say no to that who's going to say well wait a minute you know, let me look at how you calculated that. Let me make sure those calculations are correct. Is there anybody minding that hen house or is, you know, the fox in there with the hens? That is a really good question. And I am honestly not sure if it would be Department of Energy or EPA that would ultimately have to certify that. Mm -hmm. But um, that is not a concern. You know, when I've looked at the, you know, sort of like the environmental uh, group pushback to this, that, that, that isn't one of the concerns that I've seen be very prominent. Uh, and, and I think one of the reasons is that um, we know that this process of, of making ethanol on the scale does release a lot of carbon. And there are already efforts. Um, there are already some things that they do to capture it. So it is right. a pretty well-known phenomenon. Like um, a lot of the soda that is consumed in the United States um, is sweetened, as everyone knows, with high fructose corn syrup. Right. But uh, the carbonation from it um, comes from the ethanol industry because I think the number oh, no. is maybe 20% or it might be lower, but some portion of the ethanol, of the carbon released by ethanol is captured and liquefied and sold to the, um, the soda industry. Wow. Um, and I, I think I that no it, it's, not, it's not more than that because um, because that's just how big the market is. Like the market can't take it all. But but they do know how to do this and they do know how to measure it. Um, uh-huh. And there are actually there's a couple there's an ADM plant that was a um, ADM ethanol plant that I believe is in Illinois. That was a Department of Energy sort of test case that is sequestering its carbon, um, but there's no pipeline involved. It's doing it sort of under, you know, near the plant. Sure. Um, and, and and it's pretty well, you know, it's, it's pretty well monitored. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just but, thinking in terms of like, I, I mean, of course, environmentalists maybe would not pay attention to this, but as a taxpayer who's yes. potentially going to be paying, I want to know who is binding the store here. <laughs> yes. And, and, when a, and when a tax credit sort of subtly, I mean, a tax credit is really the same. I mean, if it's the treasury taking less money in than it would, then you as a taxpayer have skin I, in that game. I have game. to make up the get, the difference, exactly. Yeah. Or I am paying directly out of my pocket. One way or the other, I'm getting fleeced. Yeah. But when they take a tax break and they sort of subtly turn it, well, it's not really, you know, it's not going to be direct pay. Like, like to go back to our example, like the government says, you know, K to Q for a time, Philip, we are bestowing upon you 
a $2 million tax break. And we're like, well, thank you very much. We, we can only use a tiny fraction of that. No, we're going to make it direct pay. In other words, uh, we're going to make the rest of it that you overpaid your taxes and refunded to you. Right. Then we're very happy and, you know, reconsidering life choices. Do I really need to keep writing these articles? <laughs> this podcast need to come up. <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it's, you know, it's two quite different things. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, we have to take a short break here for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Tom Philpot. Stay tuned, because, boy, this is an eye popper, I got to say, even for me. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese... The tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheese-making craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's, uh, Tom, let's talk again, uh, go back to the Midwest Carbon Express. Um, which on the surface, as you said at the outset, looks like kind of a good idea, right? I mean, we all want to see carbon dioxide sequestered out of the atmosphere. That's what everybody is looking for, uh, you know. But there is a lot more to this story than how much carbon they're going to sequester. And there were some other uh, significant environmental issues that we really haven't touched on at all. And uh, since we're going to have to wrap this up in a little while, like about 10 minutes or less, uh, let's talk about that. Like, for instance, let's start with just the whole eminent domain aspect uh, of it, which I don't really understand how a private company gets to exercise eminent domain over uh, private <laughs> landholders. So maybe you could start with explaining that. Okay, this is where we get into my article, uh, the one that's already been published. And that is that this company has a lot of influence in Iowa and at the national level. Right. Um, As you said, Jess Vilsack is now the general counsel for for the Carbon Project. And Terry Branstead, the former governor of Iowa, who was um, in the Trump administration and very um, pro-MAGA sort of a fellow, was Trump's... um, uh, ambassador, ambassador to China. To China. Uh, as Sonny Perdue put it um, once uh, that I saw him actually in person say, he's over in China selling soybeans. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's exactly what he was doing. Yep. Um, and uh, so, so Terry Branstad is sort of like the you know PR guy. For, he's on the payroll. I forget what his exact title is. And, uh, and so on the ground in Iowa, I don't know how many miles in Iowa itself, but the bulk of the 2,000-mile project is in Iowa. So, you know, more wow. than a thousand miles in Iowa. Wow. Uh, and most of it is that it goes through his farmland. It is getting the raspberry from landowners. <laughs> like, sure. you just, you know, the company won't say, you know, what which landowners are in its path. Um, but there's just all this anecdotal evidence of landowners telling the company to get lost. We didn't like these other pipelines that went through our land, what they did to them. 
we don't believe your pitch about um, ethanol, about how it's going to you know, be good for all of us because it's good for ethanol. Um, and the hell with you. And they're organizing at the county level. Several counties have, uh, have, have had their commissioners come out against it. Um, and so there's this thing called the Public Utility Board um, in Iowa that gets to decide on eminent domain issues. And they, you know, this has not come before them yet. Um, they're still trying to get landowners to agree. Uh-huh. But they have made it clear that they will use eminent domain if they don't um, get them to agree. And so this is a three-person board uh-huh. and um, appointed by the governors on these sort of rotating schedules. And one of them was, was um, appointed by Branstad, who stopped being governor in 2016 right. uh, when, when the Trump administration started. Um, and then the other two were appointed by his um, successor, um, Kim Reynolds, the current governor, who is very tight with Branstad yep. and very tight with the guy behind Summit, who's this guy named Bruce Rastetter, who's considered the kingmaker of Iowa politics, who's given lots of money to both Kim Reynolds and to Branstad, yep. uh, to their campaigns. He's now impl- literally employing Branstad. Um, and Jesus. so speculation on the ground is that this uh, pi- this pipeline will have no trouble getting through the, this commission and getting um, eminent domain status. Right. Uh, so that's going to be quite a battle. Um, that's going to cause lo- lots of strife. I mean, I actually think um, that if I were a corn farmer, I would be very suspicious of this too. But I would also be thinking, now look, um, the electric vehicle is coming. We're already seeing de- declines in gasoline consumption. That, that puts downward pressure on ethanol. Yep. This is going to make ethanol more profitable. If they can really get this into the California low carbon fuel standard, it'll generate a lot of income to these ethanol plants. That They can pass that on to farmers maybe. I, you know, I would listen to a pitch like that. And that, that's the pitch the company is making. Um, But so far, you know, and I I think that ethanol, um, you know, if you put $4.5 billion infrastructure into capturing its its carbon, and we should say there are two other pipelines under proposal. There is an Archer Daniels Midland one. And there's one that's that's marked that is backed by the, you know, giant financial firm BlackRock. Um, Very deeply, you know, two very deep pocketed. Operations. Absolutely. I think they're looking at the same economics that we've been discussing and licking their chops and <laughs> wondering how can we get our, our paws on onto this loot as well. So right. there are three, you know, uh, the summit one's the biggest by far, but there are three pipelines under consideration. And if you put multi-billion dollars of investment on the ground, that's gonna further entrench ethanol and make it harder to unwind. And if I were a corn farmer, you know, looking at my bottom line, I might consider that, you know, in my equation. But and that's exactly the case that um, that Summit is making. Yeah. And so far, from what I can tell, it has been a major bust. Like no one wants to listen to this. Really? No one believes it. Um, you know, they think it's just going to mess up my land. Um, and you know, there's a lot of complaints about um, previous pipelines that have gone through and. The land above them not being as productive um, and that kind of thing. Sure, sure. I mean, I can see all sorts of reasons, and and most importantly, it you know it prolongs the dependence on fossil fuel use and 
uh, you know, uh, this fake industry of ethanol, which I think we didn't discuss the statistic in the beginning, but I think it takes like a gallon and a half of gas to make a gallon of ethanol or something. Isn't there some preposterous that, equation like that where it's like, that's you under, know, that's highly, dis that's highly disputed. Um, there are lots, oh, good. Of, lots, and lots of arguments around that, but, um, but I think any, any sensible researcher who has looked at it would agree that the amount of, of sort of net energy released that generated by the process is very, very modest. Um, it is, you know, it's not, um, it's not dramatically better than, than gasoline. Um, it's very, very marginally better. And, um, and, you know, one thing that gets me is that the internal combustion engine is just this incredibly wasteful technology. Yeah. Like, you know, some huge uh, portion of the energy in your, you know, internal combustion car is just sort of wasted as heat. And sure. um, the electric engine is just a lot more efficient. And so, you're, you, you know, ethanol is sort of keeping us wed to this incredibly wasteful technology. And it really doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as you say, the electric vehicle is making some strides, and uh, car companies are are moving along on those on that track uh, in a way that is somewhat encouraging. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of government. You know, the same administration, the Biden administration, that's really kind of pushing projects like this, is also putting a good amount of resources into electrifying transport. It's kind of a right. contradiction in policy. Well, I think it's trying to, you know, pl placate, uh, you know, a variety of stakeholders, essentially, yes. right? I mean, yeah. uh, it, and that's what politics comes down to, is making sure that every every mouth that is gaping for money, for food, i.e. money, um, is, is going to get its little uh, little scrap uh, out of uh, government policy. And that's that's what we're watching uh, unfold in front of us right now. And, you know, we hope that the that the technology evolves fast enough uh, to make electric vehicles an even better, some other form of of fueling uh, travel and transportation. I mean, electric vehicles are not without consequence either. No um, way. You're right? exactly right. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, we still have not found the perfect solution, but certainly it's better than emitting more uh, fossil fuels. Uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a step up. Uh, I don't know if it's enough, but, I, I, you know, my research and, you know, the way that I've processed it is that it's a definite step up. I think, you know, for transportation, it's really hard to see how you get to anything like sustainability in a country that has, you know, outside of a couple of cities, you know, pretty much no mass transit to no speak No mass of. transit, absolutely. I mean, I live yeah. in rural Rhode Island. And, yeah. you know, we have and I'm my state is not unlike probably every other state in the union, uh, which is that and even in Providence, our capital city, there's not there's no there's like a bus system. There's yeah. not a lot of public transportation. I mean, it's just it doesn't know what this country has never really invested in it because the car, you know, the car industry yeah. controlled transportation for so long and still. Yeah, does, we did. Essentially. You know, we did in the pre-car cities. We have it. But in the right. post cars, postcard cities like, you know, the southwest where I'm. We're on Austin, Texas. Um, right. You know, it's uh, I am now out of there and watching this um, incredible nonstop growth in Austin. Yeah. Uh, of its population without any growth in its mass transit. It's going, you know, how is that going to work? Sure. That's right.
That's right. Well, we should probably wrap it up there, Tom. Always a joy and a delight, my friend. Uh, tell people how they can learn more about your work, follow you on whatever, you know, all of the, the appropriate, promote yourself, my friend. That's, that's Yes, you can follow my, my, my tweets on NBA basketball. And uh, <laughs> no, well, I do it every once in a while. Uh, I'm through politics at, at Tom Philpot on Twitter and with two T's at the end. And um, yep. find me on motherjones.com. Yep. Um, and you can find my book at bookshop.org or any other place to get your books. That's right. So it's called, by the way, Perilous Bounty, people, Perilous if you didn't Bounty. catch that at the top of the episode. Tom, thank you so much. It was really fun to talk to you. Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks to my sponsors, and we'll see you next week. Uh, appreciate you tuning in. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.